Hello, Stuart. Hey. How are you? Very good, thank you. Good, good. We have our um, we have our earphones on today, mm. so we're professional podcasters. I feel professional. Yeah, so do I. Actually, you know, we tried it without them. Um, this feels a lot more natural, and I think it, it even looks. You look great with them on. It's nice to be in the same room. It's it the is. first time we've done this in the same room. This is the first time you and I have been in this room. Yeah. Uh, this is a great room. It sounds great. It sounds great in here. Um, and hopefully it's going to sound great to everyone who listens to us. Yeah. We have a we have a really interesting topic today to discuss, and it's something that we've kind of been focusing on from a from an Acadia perspective for a little while, right? And the reason why we do that is because it directly affects our clients, right? Um, and will directly affect many of our clients. It's Basel Three Endgame, right? Mm. Um, so what we're going to do today, and you're going to kind of fill in all the specifics <laughs> because you're the expert. Um, I know I know a little bit about this too, so we can have a nice conversation. Um, so Basel III Endgame, mm. that's what we're going to be talking about today. It's an important regulation. It's something that uh, is going to affect all of our clients for the most part. It is a regulation in the United States that's going into effect July of 2025. July of 2025. So it's kind of coming. And I know that there's a lot of regulation uh, advocacy that's been happening. We've been talking about that a little bit. But why don't we just dive into what Basel III Endgame is for the folks who are listening, and then we can discuss why does this matter, and then we'll see where that goes. Yeah. So Basel III, believe it or not, was kicked off after the financial crisis. It feels like that was forever ago. It was 15 years now. Yet we st we're still talking about it and still talking about the ramifications. Yeah. And Basel III was a new set of capital rules intended to increase the amount of capital banks held and make it more comparable and roll it out in a global sense. And, and it's fair to say the US is, is way behind every other jurisdiction in the world. So some jurisdictions like uh, Japan and Canada are already posting this much capital, mm -hmm. posting those increased capital. Most other jurisdictions have a longstanding proposal in place, even if there are some details to, to iron out like Europe with a pretty well-defined go-live date. And new, the US was really the, the last major geography to come on board with this and release its proposals. And that has given it a pretty accelerated timeline, um, which is probably not an issue to most of the big banks, but maybe more of an issue to some of the smaller banks. But fundamentally, and you can look back at what the Fed itself has said, this probably means about a 20% increase in capital held by banks in the US. 20% on top of what they hold already. Yeah. That sounds like a lot because there have other been other reforms. Like if you talk about UMR and, you know, Dodd-Frank, um, part of that was making sure that there was enough capital in, in the case that somebody, there's another Lehman or another Bear. And so yeah. and this is on top, this is on top of things that have already been put in place. Yeah. And I think that's an important point to make, right? So- you know, when these kind of regulations were being discussed in other geographies, they were discussed very much in the aftermath of the financial crisis, where there was a huge amount of you know, public anger towards banks, mm -hmm. feeling a pressure to make them pay for what happened maybe in 2008 and make sure it couldn't happen again. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that that sort of feeling across those countries has is, is probably subsided now. And now banks are, I think, understood for the important role they do play and how important they are to the recovery of economies post-COVID. Yeah. So now it does make it more difficult for the US coming forward with these regulations in the current climate compared to maybe 
other places where they were being discussed pre-COVID, still in that aftermath of 2008. It it seems like not the best time for this. And I know when these timelines were put in place, we weren't, we probably weren't in an interest, interest rate environment that we're in now. Yeah. We haven't, we didn't have inflation like we have now. I'm assuming all of that's going to play into the discussions that are going to be happening on Capitol Hill in the U.S. Absolutely. Yeah. But of course, if, if the U.S. does choose not to go ahead or choose to do something different and pull back from it, there'll be a lot of pushback from the other world geographies. You know, other people have committed to this. Um, you know, yes, it's going to be a big impact to the profitability of U.S. banks, but every other bank in the world is taking the same thing. Mm-hmm. Why should they, you know, effectively put themselves at a competitive disadvantage? And would we see a pullback of those regulations mm-hmm. or an ostracization of, of the U.S.? You know, it's very hard to see how that would play out and how other how the geographies would respond if the U.S. chooses to do something different. Having said that, the U.S. regulator has put through a fully gold-plated set of packages. They've taken what was already a tough set of capital metrics and they've made them quite a lot tougher. Stuart, uh, I want to jump into the removal of IMM in the U.S. and what does it mean? Why do it? What are the consequences of it? Explain first, what does IMM stand for? So IMM stands for the Internal Model Method. And historically, there have been this kind of two sets of models, these internal model approaches for market risk or internal model method for uh, for credit risk. And that's a, the method that you use to calculate that. And they contrast to the standardized approaches. So the big thrust around Basel III has been to lift up the um, standardized metrics to make them more risk sensitive, to increase the amount of capital that they cost, to make them more comparable across banks. So banks are playing on a level playing field. And there's also been largely an attack on the internal model approach or internal model method to, to make it less important. So for instance, there's a flaw now, which comes from the standardized approach, uh, which means you can't go less than 70% of standardized, even if your internal model says it should be much less. Now, the US has chosen to go one step again further than that and simply say, no, we will not have any internal model method approaches for counterparty credit risk. Counterparty credit risk is normally by far the biggest capital charge out of market risk and counterparty risk. And, um, you know, taking away that internal model method immediately means a substantial increase for, for, for the U.S. banks. Something that I would say is a huge consequence. What about, what about XVA desks? You know, their, their importance, they've been at the forefront of counterparty credit risk and managing that risk for, for banks. And what's the knock-on effect there? Well, I think if you take it as a whole, take that whole community of risk professionals yeah. and, and how that team of people has historically been funded, they've been funded by the difference in the cost of capital between an internal model method approach and a standardized model approach. And that effective source of funding is, is disappearing for this group of people. Now, that, that funding would pay for both the smart quants who ran a lot of these models and devised a lot of them, also the infrastructure that they ran on. So what we're left with is a a single model, which is going to run across everything, and less funding available for the smart mathematicians to do risk calculations within the banks. Now, it's fair to say that group was largely discredited right after 2008 in that if you had all these amazing models and they didn't predict (laughs) what happened, they didn't work. What was the point of them? True. Um, On the flip side, simply saying we're going to get rid of them completely is equally difficult. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's yet a middle ground 
to be reached here, unless some of the advocacy that you know, we've read about, and maybe we, do you can you talk about some of the advocacy? I mean, that's, that's I think there's on? a great quote from Scott Amalia. It yeah. is there, and he said that the reliance on a one size fits all model will be a major uh, change that could mm -hmm. lead to herd behavior and drive concentrations of particular assets. Yeah, uh, and you know he's he's really talking about when you have a simplified model, everyone knows how it works. There's always gaps in that model. There can't not be gaps because it is simplified. And um, in those gaps, you know, they, they can be home for types of trading that maybe are not particularly safe. And when you get that systemically across a whole bunch of institutions, you can introduce a systemic risk. Mm -hmm. So then there's a question as to how the regulators would approach that type of problem. Back in the internal model days, they could have directed banks at that problem and said, no, this is your issue. You, you go fix your modeling to cope with this risky behavior you're taking. But by taking on more responsibility as the regulator, saying this is the standardized model, it fixes everything. It really must then fix everything. Mm. Uh, and if it doesn't, it's on you as the regulator for not uh, resolving it. So it moves the kind of center of power for risk calculations, moved it firmly towards the regulator. But you know, with that comes a lot of responsibility on them to make sure it works. And just as a side note, you mentioned Scott. I worked at ISDA, and Scott was my boss at one time. It, it makes a lot of sense of what he's saying, and I think makes sense that that's ISDA's position. They're echoing, they're echoing the industry, mm. right? I, I think that the more I unpack this, and again, I'm not, I'm not an expert in this field, but I've been talking about it for a while. It seems to me that when you start moving market forces away from markets and into the hands of regulators. And I'm not saying that look, I think the re regulators overall have done a very good job with the, with the, with the reforms. Mm. We said it, we, we saw it through Dot Frank and UMR, the creation of SIM and all of the things that we've built at, at Acadia as well. And, and everyone else in the industry for that matter to, to manage the, the systemic risk that was presented to us during the 0708 crisis. Mm. But this, to me, feels like like a little bit too much and an overreach, generally speaking. Now, you don't have to agree with me. That's just my instinct. And I'm glad that I'm hearing that there is there's advocacy going on to try to bring all of these things to light. It sounds like ISDA is doing their work on this. We have our colleagues at LSEG who have been on the Hill talking about this at length as well because it affects the cleared markets as well as the uncleared markets, et cetera. So I do think that um, I'm hoping that we get some clarity around this soon. Mm. Do you have any sense of that at all? Have you heard anything? I know we've we've had some conversations and we had a event a couple of, about a month ago almost, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't recall, you know, if there was a timeline, I don't think there is a timeline. And generally speaking, the regulators will do what they do in their own time. And, and Congress obviously is going to be on vacation for the holidays. So we probably won't know anything until, you know, the next quarter of next year or the first half of next year. I think the, f the first thing to say is there's a, you know, the regulation was put forward and normally it would come forward with a unanimous backing of the people proposing it. Yeah. And it, it didn't it even didn't. get that. Yeah. You know, it wasn't even fully backed by the people who were proposing it. And, you know, only one person fully supported it. And most people supported it with reservations. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways it's almost a, 
a declaration, they expect there to be a negotiation here. Mm -hmm. That, yes, this is the most aggressive possible set of capital calculations we can put forward, and we accept it's going to be pulled back a little bit from this. Yeah. The other thing, um, which is maybe it's a technical point, but maybe it's also just an important point about how it's been done, you know, there should be uh, data backing up the proposals that are made. And it's not clear that there really is data in place. And in fact, there is some now efforts to get more data from the banks um, to bring this into that process and into that discussion. Now, part of that inevitably is going to be driven by the timeline and the desire to be live in line with the rest of the geographies of the world in 2025. Mm -hmm. Um, And that gives the U.S., less time to go through this process than, than other you know countries have had. Um, so I think there's a few things going on there. I think there is a general feeling there will be some form of compromise position and, and put together with the US political climate. I don't think I've ever seen a, a website <laughs> which um, lets you send a, your, your representative a, a direct message saying, stop Basel III. Yeah. Um, that's democracy, or it's, yeah. that's the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> Um, whether but, the, whether or not they listen is another story, but we but, assume that they do. Yeah, we give them the credit. I, I, I'm, I'm sure they do, and mm-hmm. I don't think you can ignore when it when it makes that much press, and 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 it's well described how it's going to impact people in terms of their price and their mortgages, and in terms of how they do share dealing. You know, it's going to impact people in a real way. Well, so, it's, a, it's also a macroeconomic issue. Yeah. Uh, anytime I think about more capital being locked up, mm. for whether it's a good reason or not. And without data, really, like you just said, mm. to me, that means less risk-taking yeah. and less risk-taking in my view, because I'm a capitalist and that's just my, <laughs> that's just the way I've always kind of felt about things. Risk is where you make those investments in building things. Mm. We talk, you know, governments talk about infrastructure and, and building roads and bridges and, and hospitals and airports and all this other stuff. You know, it doesn't come out of the blue. Yeah. It come out of, you know, investments made at a very high level that require risk and hedging of that risk. And if you don't, if, if capital is, to me, again, I'm probably simplifying this way too much. But in my view, if capital is put aside for no other reason than because there's a, a standardized method to do it, to me, there's a lot of consequences to that. And we we probably don't know them all, is my no. guess. Yeah. yeah. And and the bet I think that's been made is that amount of capital will be large enough it can cope with anything. Rather than it being targeted and it being precise, it is simply big enough that it will cushion any blow. Yeah. So it's a sledgehammer mm. rather than yeah. a scalpel. I've yeah. used that, that added before. but And it's, it's interesting you talk about the cleared point. So one of the, one of the other reactions to 2008 was, wow, this interconnectedness is going to kill us. There's so many trades that go here, there, everywhere. We can't make sense of it. And nobody knows who's going to go bust if layman's goes down. Um, and the reality was it wasn't as bad as everyone felt it was at that time, just because no one really understood or knew. And we deal with this through central clearing. And central clearing has been a phenomenal success. Yeah. Huge growth. You know, we look at now, you know, half of a bank's trading, sometimes the derivatives goes through clearing houses or, or a single clearing house um, with very stringent risk controls around that. One of the things that Basel III Endgame looks to change is how capital gets um, applied on those businesses who are doing that clearing. So if you're a big bank and you're clearing for people, today what you do is you get to charge the fees on from the clearinghouse to your client and effectively ignore that Mm pass-through. 
in the new regulations, that's all going to be included inside your capital calculation. And that can be a pretty significant difference in how much capital you're going to have to hold. So all of a sudden, your clearing business, which in the past was extremely capital light, mm -hmm. which is what the intention was, because we wanted to encourage more clearing to improve the, the stability of the financial system and transparency yep. and all the other benefits that come from clearing. Um, and now we're going to apply a much larger capital cost to those businesses who you know, are going to look less profitable to the bank. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they put their fees up to counteract that. But in fact, that just makes their problem worse because by putting their fees up, they're going to push their capital up again. Uh, and there's some, some questions about how viable some of these clearing businesses even are under that new regime. So I think that's an area where I think it's highly likely that you could see some change just because I think it's, you know, it's, it's definitely not the desired impact yeah. to see people move away from clearing. Yeah. Um, so that'll be an interesting area. To that is, I mean, that is very interesting. I wonder what the, the thought process there is from the regular regulatory side and the legislative side. I don't have an insight into that. I don't know if you, if you do, but yeah, it, it seems counterintuitive to go from, we, you know, we want uh, margin rules and more clearing as the two pillars of the reforms mm. to, okay, now, now that there's these capital rules, it's going to cost more. Cost should be going down as more volume goes up, I would think, as, as, as economies of scale, maybe. Yeah. Whether or not, you know, I, I don't want to speak about data that I don't have, but on the face of it, what you're saying doesn't sound good to me. Actually, a lot of this doesn't sound really good to me. That's just my opinion. I don't speak for Acadia or Elseg or anyone. I'm speaking for myself. Mm. Um, I understand the need for more capital, and and we don't want firms going under, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I really feel like there is definitely an overreach here in a lot of spaces to me. Can we... Um, can we kind of move to another part of this, which is non-bank financial institutions? Do you, do you yeah, want to talk about that? I, I think it's- Or NBFIs? NBFIs, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it sounds unrelated in that they aren't impacted by Basel III, but as banks become less profitable over time because they hold more capital, because they're less, you know, more regulated in the type of activities they can do, you know, it does open up the doors to these NBFIs and these non-bank financial institutions to do more. I mean, it's worth and who thinking. are they? Are, yeah. they? are they are they are they institutions that don't put on a lot of risk from a market's perspective? Meaning, are they putting on really large swap positions? Do they hold a lot of cash securities? Yeah. What? So it's worth worth taking a step back and yeah, saying, what are these what things, are they? Yeah. And, and why right. they suddenly become important? Right. So they have already always existed. Mm -hmm. They've existed for as long, if not longer, than banks. So in in days but gone they're by, not banks. they were. Pawnbrokers, they yeah. were loan sharks, they were the guy in the corner that would lend you fifty quid. <laughs> it was this was the way non-bank financial institutions worked, and they I were, bet you they didn't have the name non-bank financial. <laughs> they were, <laughs> yeah, they didn't have such good marketing, right? Right, um, but you know, and they weren't a particular problem because they were small. They had risk themselves, but if they went under, they went under. It was no great problem. Right, they, they weren't a systemic problem. No systemic problem. Yeah. What changed, obviously, is you know the. Uh, information revolution. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, businesses like that effectively can become global entities in not a lot of time. So, you know, you look at many payday loans, I'm not going to call them loan sharks, but the business model is not <laughs> similar to that of a loan shark, right? Yeah. It's a, a short-term loan with a high interest high rate. Interest rate. Yeah. 
um, which is then collected aggressively. Mm. Um, and, you know, essentially those firms were not regulated in the same way as the banks who had a but that's a necessary. Book. That's sometimes a necessary part of exactly. business. Yeah. You need short-term loans sometimes, and the risk of, of those short-term loans don't apply to some of the larger institutions. Yeah. So there is a market need for, for these types of institutions. Yeah. Right? It's just, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with at, it. It's actually, it's actually necessary. And right? if you look at the, the non-banked you know, people in the world, of which there are a massive amount, mm -hmm. you know, those are the kind of institutions that serve the unbanked population of the yep. world. And if you want to get a loan and you need a loan for some reason and the bank won't give it to you and this guy will, you know, as long as you understand what you're entering into, there's nothing protect you. you know, right. But we're not talking about with. individuals. We're talking about, we're talking about corporations. Yeah. But have been, some have been around for quite a while. Yeah. Right. So now these firms are not, you know, small two man shops. Right. These are large multinational firms, mm -hmm. which themselves are highly interconnected and have huge, you know, potential risks associated with them. And, and again, in the wake of 2008, this was sort of observed, this growth of this, this type of firm and the fact it could portray a future risk. Mm -hmm. and, and people were interested in what kind of risk would that be and, and how, would it, how would it, you know, play out. So the FSB does quite a lot of surveying in this area and was, was tasked with doing it by the, the G8, later the G20. And they track what they see as NSF, NF, ugh, NBFIs, which have a particularly, you know, uh, particular business model, which makes them particularly exposed to systemic risks. And there are some different categories they put in that, but but basically it comes under people who've got short-term funding risk problems, mm -hmm. people who could very easily suffer from a run on their organizations, and people involved with the creation or securitization of credit. And these are the type of firms that say, these are particularly risky yeah. and, and could have systemic problems with them. When you look at that from 2006 until 2020, that's sort of the size of that business has doubled. And wow. it continues to grow pretty much linearly year on year. You know, we see a, a huge explosion in, in the presence of these type of entities. And um, various studies that have been done have looked at how does the increase in this type of volume of business affect the systemic and the, the stability risk for the financial system itself? And, and the answer is it, it increases. Every time the non-bank financial institutions increase, Mm -hmm. The size of the and the market share that they have increases, the stability goes down. Um, so I think it is somewhere that's very active for regulators by pushing up capital on banks, by increasing the risk supervision on those people. We are going to push yet more business into that non-bank sector again, mm. um, and you know there needs to be a counter counteracting weight to that to say, well, okay, we don't want all business to end up on this side, which is largely. It's not unregulated, but it's unregulated compared to the, the way banks are regulated. How should these non-bank financial institutions be regulated? Um, and I think that that will be a focus for regulators going into into next year, into how they you know make sure that they aren't just squeezing the risk out of all the banks and letting it pop out mm -hmm. in, in a slightly different place in the market. Yeah. It seems to me that if there are sectors that are out there that do not have or you know on the on the periphery the attention of regulators, they always want to bring it back because if they start seeing numbers, like you just said, all of a sudden, even if nothing has gone wrong yet, yeah. it becomes, a, it becomes a, a signal that has to flash. They have to deal with it. So are you saying that NBFIs are now in scope for Basel III Endgame? No. And I don't think it would be appropriate to put them under that regulation. Yeah. But I think regulators are actively looking and understanding what it is they need to do. Mm -hmm. And probably some type of capital buffer is appropriate. Yeah. 
but it's probably not going to be the same. And the other problem they've got is maybe sometimes categorizing these guys in terms of, you know, are we going to call this person a, a loan maker? Are we going to call this person a trader, a broker dealer, an insurance firm? Yeah. And, and if as new types of finance, you know, emerge, you, know, you almost have to categorize them, understand what they are before you can then decide how to regulate them. Yeah. And in some ways, you know, when you look at crypto, one of the challenges regulators have got with crypto is just deciding what it is. Right. Is it a, a cash security. product? Is it security? Is it a, it's a commodity? Is it right. a com yeah. And um, until you make that kind of decision, it's then hard to decide, well, which regulator is supposed to pick this thing up? All right. Well, that's interesting. To me, again, just observing what, you're, what you've been saying, even around NBFIs, it's always a delicate balance, really just from an economic standpoint of making sure you allow for the growth of a sector and don't, try not to stifle it. That's always the regulator's goal, really. I mean, they're not trying to kill business. Mm. They're trying to balance out, and I'm defending them a little bit here, even though I come down on them, and I do it to their face sometimes too. So I'm not just, you know, I'm not just having uh, podcast muscles here. Uh, they, they do need to balance that out, but that's going to be an interesting space to watch for next year and, and going into 2025. Stuart, it seems to me that there is still a lot here to unpack. There's still a lot in flux. It doesn't seem to me that Basel III Endgame story here in the US, in fact, I shouldn't say here, we're in London, just so everybody knows. But as far as Basel III Endgame for the United States and the regulators, there's still a lot more to come. We'll probably have to do this podcast again and come back and see where we've landed. Maybe we'll, we'll know in six months time or who knows, maybe who knows? you never know. But yeah, this is certainly for us at Acadia, I think we'll we'll continue to keep track of this because it's, it's very important and uh, we'll see, we yeah. shall see. Anything else, any other last comments before we go? This is a great studio, by the way. I agree. Yeah, I wanna do this again. I think watch this space. I think like you say, we'll, yeah. we'll be back and we'll talk about this again. I think there's no way that this is the end game. There's, there's something else that's going to come next. So this is not the end is. game for sure. <laughs> Never seems like it is. It just keeps going and going. Anyway, thank you so much, Stuart. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And we'll talk again. Thank you all for listening. And if you like this podcast and you want to hear more podcasts from Acadia, please visit acadia.inc or your favorite streaming devices or channels to hear more. Thank you very much.